In other words, I think it would be completely unrealistic to expect 50 to 75 years from now that the, the, the map that we know of the United States right now will remain intact. That because certainly history doesn't show that wherever you go, maps are boundaries are constantly in flux. Why would we be an exception to that? Especially given our our contentious political and cultural landscape right now. everybody welcome back so today i have a great interview to share with you guys uh, this interview went on about two hours so i decided to split it into two halves so i'm releasing the first half today and the second half i'll release in two weeks from today i couldn't really find an ideal place to break between the two halves so i chose the best place that i could it's uh, a little bit awkward but it'll kind of uh It'll kind of end, and then we'll pick up next week from that point. In this first half, we talk about a lot of general topics. We discuss election forecasting, what's happened in the country over the past five years, and where we think we might be headed. And in the second half, uh, we talk specifically about um, the division in the country and the possibility of secession or some type of disillusion and the different polling results on that topic, especially a couple of the recent polling results that came out just uh, in the past six months or so. So hope you enjoy. Our guest today began his career as a history teacher at the secondary and college levels. He then worked at Bank of New York Mellon's Central New York Data Analytics team before becoming a partner at John Zogby Strategies in 2016, a market research firm founded by his father, the famous pollster John Zogby. He is the editor of Main Street, K Street, Intelligence Air, bi-weekly report, and co-host with his father of the Zogby Report podcast, Real and Unscripted, which you can find on SoundCloud, Apple, Stitcher, and YouTube. Please welcome Jeremy Zogby. Thanks for having me here, Darren. Thanks for coming. How are you doing this morning? You know, it's great. And we have some great weather here. Um, you know, it's this is upstate New York. We have the, the four seasons, but, uh, you know, we don't get quite the summers you get, but, you know, we're thankful for it. Well, we've had some summers that we don't normally get either, um, as I'm sure you're aware with the, the, the record-breaking heat and the wildfires. Um, and everything. It's been the the past two or three years have been really unusual. So why don't we start with your uh, your own professional background? Your formal education is in history, and you were actually a history teacher for about a decade, if I'm not mistaken. That's that's exactly right. How did you make the transition from academia and education into political polling and 
public opinion research? Well, long before I was a teacher, I was working with my dad out in the field. Um, mm -hmm. the, my first job was 10 years old. Uh, my dad landed this, this, uh, this regular job with the, the local transit authority. We call them bus surveys. The, basically, the transit authority wanted to know, um, they wanted to update and, and, and know how they should allocate their, their various routes throughout the city of Utica. And so if there was a route that weren't picking up many people, then, then they could move that, that driver over to another. It could consolidate, basically. So I would, I would sit on a bus all day long uh, for this one particular route and count where people were getting on and what they were paying with. And so that was like my, you know, basic introduction to statistics. I mean, very, very simple, but there, there was much more to it. There was a cultural experience. There was, there was, I guess you could say, uh, street smarts. I mean, you see a lot of stuff on the, the, the public, uh, transit authorities when you, when you're 10 years old, especially for a full shift. So started out that. And then when I was old enough to go into the call center, making phone calls, doing the, 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 the telephone surveys, and then doing some projects during the summer when I got old enough. My dad would, would let me analyze crosstabs and write kind of like rough draft reports for the communications teams. And, and so I really got to learn how to, how to read crosstabs, read data, and formulate questions. And I always knew that's what I wanted to do, but I knew that I had to – I knew that – because this is what my dad did. If, if, if you're analyzing events, you have to be grounded in something. And he was very much grounded in history. And so I said, why? Well, you know, I, it's always been something that I was interested in and gravitated. So I figured what I'll do is I'll, I'll launch my career as a teacher and really get that down, get, gain some knowledge of history. And then I'm going to be in a much better position to analyze current events. And that's, that's what I did. Yeah. And I think that um, I think that is something that's missing from a lot of uh, survey research and opinion polling is they're so they're so driven by just crunching numbers. I think that they lose sight of the bigger picture a lot. I would I would agree. Um, you know, we're we're not statisticians. We have we have close family members who are statisticians who've been doing the statistics for, for 20 years. Of course, we, you know, we, we understand the basic principles, but it's, I mean, it's, it's really in, how do you frame the questions? How do you frame the questions for the unique projects? That's the other thing is we, we don't do just political polls. As you mentioned, we also do a lot of market research um, and, 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 and other kinds of jobs, but how do you, how do you look at each unique project and frame the right questions and then and then read the data and then explain what the data means. So I mean it's 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 much more than just statistical modeling. It, it's also being knowledgeable of geography, uh, you know, regions, uh, localities, um, politics, culture, so many things. And and I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Interdisciplinary, in other words. Before we move on to specific issues, and we've kind of already um, started talking about this, can you just explain for everyone what are the goals of market research and 
how does a market researcher specifically go about capturing and interpreting uh, that data to achieve those goals? Yeah. So a whether, and again, this is true of, of political polling as it is of market research polling, you want to know your place in the, in the marketplace. So if you have a new product or a new service, you probably shouldn't just open up a business not knowing what your competition is, not knowing whether people are even interested in general and in, in what you're going to offer. And then you have to take it a, a step further and, and figure out, well, even if you think you have your niche, right, and, and you, even you've already done some number crunching and maybe you, you've looked at your competitors and done some number crunching and you've determined how your your approach is unique. Now, will you test it with the public and the data collection process and the survey research part? So somebody would, would contact us and, and say, um, we've got a new product, you know, um, one, one off the top of my head that was pretty interesting. Uh, and this was years ago, so I, I, can, I can talk about this in very broad terms was, it was an insurance for, to protect you against your home going underwater, which I thought was genius, ingenious, right? And so they needed to have the numbers in order to get the investors. So they did a nationwide survey of, of, uh, of adults and we screened for the, you know, for the adults, for the, the appropriate audience or survey participants, which would be aspiring home buyers, people who are re currently renting or new, new homeowners as well. Um, and what did they think about this product? Here, here is how the product worked. And then you'd have them respond to whether they were very favorable or, or uh, somewhat fa favorable, all the way to the somewhat unfavorable, very unfavorable, not sure. Uh, how likely were they to, to get this product if they knew X, Y, Z? Um, they even wanted to know what should we name it? So they, you know, they had kicked around five or seven ideas in their head and what, you know, of this list, which one do you think is most effective? And so we tabulate it. We look at the overall results. We break it down by demographics and figure out who's your audience, where, who's more likely to buy at this price that you're, you're offering for, for a monthly premium. And, um, what's fascinating is, is this is applicable in so many areas. This is almost the exact same thing that you do with political polling. Hey, I'm running for mayor. What's my platform? Who says that they would vote for me on, on election day? How many people are they favorable of me or unfavorable of me? What about my opponents? How do I rank up them, uh, against my, my opponents? What's the best message and, and among who? And so it's, it's, it's very relevant stuff. I'll just say this one more thing. It's best that you don't spend tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars on campaigning without knowing how well liked and, and where you can make your, your gains in the community, whether it's a, a product service or someone running for office. What would you say are the biggest misconceptions that most people have about political polling and public opinion research? Um, well, so I would say somewhere along the way in the 90s, polling became synonymous, and I'm going to exaggerate a little here, became synonymous 
at least among the pundits with, with something like soothsaying and Nostradamus, like the ability to, to predict. Now, there is a predictive element in polling and political polling, no question about it. I'll get to that in a second. But I think because of journalists, there are, there are obviously some journalists who know how to read polls and who know how to ask the right kind of questions as, as far as, well, what's the methodology that you're using and, and whether one methodology is, is more appropriate in one project versus another and what types of questions are you asking and, and, and all of that. Um, polling, political polling is predictive because, okay, so we did a poll, we, we were doing the 2020 election and um, election day was November was November 3rd. And so we we did a poll on, on November 2nd. And so the night before, we have our raw data. And in polling, you, you apply weights, which means you get your raw data, but now you have to you know use very simple equations to to match it to the current, whether it's it's whether it could be the census data data uh, basically on on population the most up-to-date data so that it's it's a little bit more grounded in reality because the raw data form you can get you could have a little bit more men or a little bit more women or or less uh african americans or more hispanics and so you just you apply weights and and you I, the way i describe it is you you bring it back in, into reality and so but on on a political poll the day before the election what you have to predict is, well, what's the turnout going to be? So I have my, I have my, my raw data that I just gathered from the field. I've applied my weights, but I've been tracking the political polls for months now. And so what I feel is that I think whites are going to turn out, uh, whites over 65 are actually going to turn out more because I've been, I've been following the news and I see these indicators that they're going to turn out more. I think that, for example, maybe I think that young people just aren't as excited because some events have happened in the last three weeks that point to they're not going to come out like they did for Obama. And so this is where intuition comes into play. And so now you're adding to this model your intuition and, 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 and shaping the numbers. This is the predictive element. Of, of what you think voter turnout is going to be the next day. So you're predicting tomorrow, but I don't know, maybe, maybe, people, maybe people think that in the most extreme sense that people can predict into a year or two, but I, I, I certainly don't claim to, to know how to do that. I would say probably most pollsters would, would agree with me on that. It, it's almost seems to me like it's uh, like a weather forecast. You're giving a range like, you know, the high high temperatures could be between this and this. And, uh, of course, the closer you are to the day that you're forecasting, the more accurate you're going to be compared. You know, nobody expects a weather person to to forecast three months <laughs> to the day <laughs> what the yeah. temperature is going to be. Exactly. You're providing a snapshot in time over time. And, and, you know, leading up to the 2020 election, there were some pretty ridiculous polls. One was showing um, in Wisconsin, Biden ahead by 17. In Wisconsin, really? Right? Wisconsin is a swing state. Um, there are counties within 
Wisconsin that make it a swing state. That's how tight it is. But as you as you alluded to, as you're getting closer to the election, those things kind of start disappearing. Like in the in the final week, a lot of people start getting their their act together. But beforehand, there, you'll see some very wild polls of, of of double digit leads, and it's like, no, listen, we've we've basically been a divided nation since 2000. I mean, Obama was a, a, was an exception where he had some pretty strong majorities, more so his first election, but by and large, we've been a, a, a very divided nation. I want to ask you about one other aspect of um, election forecasting, and you can talk about this in general terms. Um, there are some websites or uh, people who will do a kind of aggregation of polls and run simulations where <clears throat> they have like a computer that models what's going to happen. And they kind of, they have this enormous computer simulation, almost like a physics experiment, and they feed all the data in and then they run it like, I don't know, 20,000, 50,000 times. And then they use those outputs from the simulation to make conclusions. And I mean, I'm a mathematician, so I mean, math is my background. I just don't know what exactly to think about that. I mean, that makes sense to me, like in physics or something, but I just don't know what I think about it for elections. And yeah, um, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, let's talk about a, a specific individual, which which I don't mind because I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to go on the offense, but I. I feel like maybe what you're talking about sounds a little bit like Nate Silver, right? A little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that, uh, and, and listen, Nate has been very critical towards almost every pollster and us included. Um, he kind of came on the scene and, and, you know, he, for like young political junkies, he was like Moses <laughs> and, um, you know, he, he rated pollsters, he aggregated polls, but I don't know, to my knowledge, that he ever conducted a poll. So I, I, I'd be interested in, in whether he actually did that or not. But what Nate Silver did, what I think his, his contribution was, he got the armchair political junkies, the, the, let's just say political junkies who were following politics, but and maybe we're following polls, but weren't really looking in depth into polls. He got them to start asking questions. Hey, what's your methodology? Um, show us the data. If you're going to set, if you're going to release uh, a poll, give us a hyperlink so we can see more, you know, and, and I feel like more people, I feel like we've always been very transparent or, or at least as much as we, we can in, in the industry. Um, we always link to the cross tabs and, and the questions so people can see beyond the, the press release. But he, he did he did a, a real good service for, to get people to, to go deeper on that. And, and you know, I, I, I think a lot more people are paying attention to that stuff. But as far as your question with I, I would just follow up your question with, with another question. I mean, how how accurate is he? To my knowledge, he's. He's been he, he's he's made some some forecasting or predictions that have been some right. He's also been grossly wrong on on a lot of them. So 
I would, I would never tell him, Hey, stop what you're doing. If you are onto something and, and you're improving this over time and it, it's actually a better, you know, predictive uh, predicting model, then maybe I need to, maybe I need to uh, think about shifting gears in my work, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think, and this is getting into the next uh, topic I wanted to talk about, the kind of perception of election polling. I think there was one of the elections that Nate called very accurately. He had like 48 or 49 states, correct, out of Mm -hmm. 50? Yeah. And there seemed to be like this general idea that, um, oh my gosh, he's, like you said, Moses or something. And I think there's a bit of an overreaction. He he got it on the nose so much that people kind of overreacted and said, we must uh, take everything that he says as, as the gospel. And then when they haven't been so accurate lately, I think there's been a little bit of an overreaction in the other direction where a lot of people are just saying, well, let's just throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's, there's nothing that we can get from this. Um, so can can you talk about that uh, the current state of election polling and um I think there's been a lot of soul searching and kind of gnashing of teeth over 2016 and 2020 um yeah because they were uh well you could say they're off the mark would be putting it mildly um there's other ways you could put it too <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, you got to look at the winners and the losers. I mean, right now we're looking at the Olympics, right? And so, I mean, one way to look at it is is you you could say you you could focus on the the 17 or the 15 people who who you thought were going to get a gold medal who didn't. But you should also look at who got the gold medal. And so, in other words, there there were polls that were that were right. There were polls that were were accurate. There were polls that were we're not too far off. I, 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 of course, have to mention that we we nailed it uh, in 2020. We had Biden. Our final poll showed Biden ahead by five, the the popular vote, five percentage points, and um, that's that's basically what what Biden won by. So, and then there were I I, I think Trafalgar was pretty good again. He, Trafalgar group were were correct and. In 2016, and and there's a handful of others. So you know, people should should go to the if if you're interested in this stuff, go to the realclearpolitics.com and and look up you know the past presidential polls and and see that there were people who who were within a, a margin and and they got it right. But then there were those, as we discussed weeks leading up, we're showing a, a Biden blowout, you know, over double digit. And and so I mean I, I think just to be fair in the coverage we at the same time that we look at those who are wrong we should focus on on those those who are right so I think the climate of course maybe because it tends to be sensationalist and then also just following the the general negative mood in political coverage in general it it, it tends to be contentious Every, everything regarding politics now becomes contentious but in in reality. Months after the 2020 election, we still have clients calling us and, and saying, um, we need a reading. We, we need we need the pulse. We need to know about this or uh, about that. And obviously, you still see polls being reported in, 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 in the news and people citing polls. 
it's just part of that election mania, I think. Yeah, I never bought um, going into the the November third, uh, the double digit stuff. I I just had a sense that that was just that couldn't be right. Um, that it was going to be a lot closer than that, and I don't know. Maybe it um, maybe it has something to do with. Um, I think you talked about this. The a lot of it has to do with the waiting, kind of uh, your modeling of turnout. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of pollsters uh, overestimated Democratic turnout, or maybe underestimated Republican turnout. Yeah, it did. The question is, is whether it was deliberate or whether it's a result of bias. And and I can't prove and say that it was deliberate, although you almost got to say you shouldn't be surprised, especially what happened given 2016, where, again, you know, the polls leading up to the election were, oh, it's a Hillary blowout. Oh, you know, forget about it. Trump doesn't have a chance. And um, meanwhile, some polls were oversampling Democrats. And and like you said, they they were, they, maybe they were just reasoning, um, well, Democrats are going to turn out like wild because, uh, because uh, they're, they're scared of, of Mussolini or uh, the American Mussolini. All right. And, um, but that didn't happen. But so I, I think, unfortunately, what happens is the echo chamber phenomenon where, you know, I mean, if you live in, in a power center like Washington, D.C. or Manhattan, and, you know, I mean, obviously a lot of people with, with in the power centers with money, they, they fly and they go on vacation. But chances are they're not, you know, they're not coming up to upstate New York where I live or they're not, you know, they're not going to uh, they're not going through Oklahoma. That's for sure. <laughs> um, and so. They're just surrounded by people, their neighbors, uh, who they work with, their friends and their family, who are all, there's just this very narrow feedback, loop of feedback. And they, and so their world, which is a very tiny world, although powerful, they are honestly saying, I, I can't see how this happens. I, I don't get it. And I think that's why we've always had an advantage because... We live, um, not only do we live in a district that's a swing district, but we also live in in what we call real America, a small city, a city that's seen its days, a city where they used to have a beautiful main street that's been, you know, decimated, but coming back. Um, And so, I mean, if, if if you don't visit real America and you're far away from it, you're never going to get real America. Yes, that's true. I think it runs uh, both directions. There's definitely uh, these power centers where they're 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 completely out of touch with uh, what's going on in a lot of parts of the country. On the other hand, uh, you know, I've talked to people who are in uh, red states or in you know Trump country, and to them, it's it's just inconceivable that you know Biden would win a state like California by however many the 30 points are almost they it just they can't they uh can't wrap their minds around it and they they chalk it up to dominion voting systems and rigged elections and fraud and so i think it 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 runs in a lot of different um a lot of different directions 
um, when you said people get in these echo chambers. Oh yeah, no, I would agree with that. Um, and, and social media certainly doesn't help that. I mean, these, these algorithms, my, my perception of it is, is ever since the, the FANG economy, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, I mean, which has basically become how most of us get our information in one way or another, because the platforms determine what's shareable, what's not shareable. They determine what you see based on these algorithms. And so, I mean, there people as a result are kind of just going down their, their own versions of the rabbit hole and into their own versions of reality. And it's, 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 um, it's too bad, right? Because we should, we should be crossing over. We should be, we should be open to hearing both sides as many sides as we can, not just two sides. Turning to some more general topics. Um, I want to ask you about what you think of the general state of American politics. And um, just to be clear, um, I ask you this not in terms of your own personal experience, although that, your own personal opinion and experience, but really based upon the survey data that you've collected and analyzed and interpreted over the past few years. Yeah, so... um... The, the, the general, the overarching, I guess, mood, um, there's a lot of distrust. Um, there's, everybody knows there's, there's stark division. Um, the, unfortunately, the, the, the two sides, the, the Democrats and the Republicans, um, have, we've, moved away from the middle. Moderates don't really, although moderates are many, they don't really have a voice. There's still a substantial amount of, of moderates, but it, it, the, the politics is, it's, it's, uh, it's incredibly divisive. And I, I think a lot of it has to do with, with the major platforms of, of information, not just, you know, television networks, but also their, their versions of online news and, and, as, as well as social media platforms and, and people are at each other's throats, um, verbally. And, um, there is a, there is a, I, okay. I think the most important thing to, to highlight is that there is a complete loss of empathy and somebody with my background in, in world history would, would call that tribal, right? Because the very essence of a tribal society is is a limited experience it's beyond it's very difficult to understand somebody beyond your kinship beyond your village you know beyond your locality that that's the essence of tribalism and that's unfortunately what's going on in, in the whole nation is that the other is the enemy yet because i've i've by and large broken free of the I'm independent. I, 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 I'll be honest with you. I haven't voted since 2012 because, um, to me, it's obvious that, that, that both parties are, are antagonizing to me. Like if, if somebody's going to go up in arms about January 6th and say, oh, you know, those, those right-wing domestic terrorists, I'm going to say, okay, January 6th was very dramatic, but do you remember 2016? Do you remember the hysteria? That we had a, a, a president that was elected 
um, completely illegitimate. He was a, 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 a puppet of, of Vladimir Putin. You know, there was a, there was such thing as, as a honeymoon, a presidential honeymoon, where like the first hundred days, you got a break. It was like, you know, give the guy a chance, give him a hundred days to, to get something done, to prove himself. Trump, in my opinion, was the first president that didn't even have that. And, and I don't even like the guy and I can admit that. And so the roots of January 6th and the denial of 2020 are found in 2016. And if, if anybody goes and listens to our podcast leading up to the election in, in November of 2020, my father and I were saying, it doesn't matter who wins. They're going to reject it no matter what. That's where we are at. Incredible division and, and contentious politics, labeling over listening, a complete lack of empathy. You must have a copy of my notes because that's exactly the next thing that I was going to bring up. Really? Um, okay. <laughs> I think we're, uh, well, I was talking, I was going to mention the, um, the lack of acceptance of election results. And I think we're staring down kind of the barrel of a gun coming up to the midterms and, and then especially in, in 24. Um, I think you're right about 2016. And, um, you know, I'm a leftist, but I'm not a partisan Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that, um, although I think there is a fundamental difference in that, um, Hillary Clinton did verbally concede. She attended the inauguration. She um, assisted with the transfer of power and didn't try to you know, interfere with that. But psychologically, um, yeah. there there was not an acceptance um, of the legitimacy of the result. Yeah, and um, I I don't think anyone can deny that. And there was a similar type of. Um, I would call it conspiracy theorizing about uh, t- they take a kernel of uh, a kernel of truth about, you know, Russia had some Internet farm that, that did something on Facebook and, uh, you know, and so a few other some of his business connections with Russia. And they uh, manufactured this this whole conspiracy about collusion with the Kremlin. And that really. um that really polluted the the discourse, I think. Um, and I know a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of Democrats are going to disagree with me on that. But um, I remember at the time watching, oh, what is what was his name? He has a show where he looked like he was broadcasting from his basement. He used to be on MSNBC. Um, but he was just going on and on about... Uh, you know, the Russians this and the Russians that, and they're just the most vile kind of uh, xenophobic uh, ranting. And, you know, I, I, I agree with you. I think that uh, there is a progression from the 2016 to 2020 in that uh, we've had two consecutive presidential elections where in both cases, the campaign that lost or the, the the half of the country that lost the election uh, really did not accept the, the legitimacy of the result. And that's very dangerous, especially it happens twice in a row. Yeah. And I think it's going to happen again in 2024. I think it's almost certain to happen again. 
Well, you know, looking back on it, a lot of people thought that happened in 2000. A lot of people thought it happened in 2004. That's something that's been swept under the carpet. And, and you know, for better or for worse, I don't know. But um, I don't think people were ready back then to have that. that they, they were, but I think they just said, all right, we got to move on. But, I mean, there was one thing that jumped out in what you said, where you said Hillary conceded. She over, you know, ceremonially oversaw the, the transfer of power. I mean, obviously, Trump did uh, eventually as well. Um, but, you know, it, it was just, yes, the Democrats accepted. But then from day one, it was it was informational warfare. I mean, it was it was open warfare. I mean, I whether I was in the airport, whether I was, you know, out to eat or, or to meet with somebody, if the TV was on, you actually saw journalists yelling. I mean, they were they were almost foaming at the mouth. And um, I remember seeing running into people and they were saying, I'm getting sick. I'm getting sick. And they were serious. They were physically getting ill because the information that, that was bombarding them was was projecting an anger and they were internalizing it. And they were carrying the anger and it was it was it was sowing the seeds of, of division. And and I'm not going to say Trump should get away with with what he did. It, the same thing happened. But I think it's bigger than people need to get beyond left, right and Democrat and Republican. It's bigger than that. Whatever happened on on November 3rd, if it were the if it were the exact opposite, if 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 Trump had clearly won the Democrats were not going to accept it. Maybe it wouldn't have looked exactly like January 6th. I don't know what it would have looked like, but I know they weren't going to accept it because a lot of them were saying it. A lot of them were saying we're not going to accept it. That's, that's a bigger cultural political phenomenon. That, that, those, are, those are plate tectonics in the political landscape that are, are, are bigger than Biden or Clinton or, or Trump. And, and I think one of the biggest problems is party allegiance. I don't get I don't get party allegiance. I, I understand religious and philosophical allegiance. I, I can understand somebody saying, hey, uh, my family have been Catholic for for fifteen hundred years or hey, we've been Muslim. We can trace our Muslim lineage back to, you know, to to Muhammad. Or, or even 500 years ago, or whatever, 300 years. But parties, we're talking about two, three generations. What? Why do you have to be beholden to a party and do whatever, whatever they say? That's true. Um, I want to push back on you a little bit on, because um, this is something I've heard. Um, you talked about it with your dad on the podcast and mentioned it before, and I've heard religious leaders and community leaders and so forth talk about this. Um, I think it's a good sentiment to to bring up, and I think it's a, a positive approach. But I don't think it's necessarily going to lead everywhere that um, people think it is. And that is the idea of toning down the, the temperature, toning down the volume, turning the temperature down, sitting down with people and mm -hmm. talking with them. I think that's really necessary. I think it's 
I think it's a good thing to do because I do think we we do need to tone down the the volume and get the temperature down. My point is that I think that even if we we sit down and we really are empathetic and listen and start the process of rehumanizing and and not you know dehumanizing uh, the other side. I think even after that, I think there's still going to be disagreements that are that are too fundamental. Um, so I think, sure, of course, sitting down and talking, I think it will help address the escalating violence and you know, and that kind of thing. But I'm not sure that it's going to necessarily solve. Um, I don't know if it's going to necessarily solve the the disagreements. Let me let me think through some topics. Um, you know, there's a certain segment of the population that uh, they're kind of set on outlawing abortion. And there's there's another, I mean, I know the vast majority of Californians are, they're never going to accept living in a country where abortion is outlawed. And that's that's not going to be, that's not going to be, uh, that's irre- irreconcilable. If one side is dead set on overturning Roe v. Wade or even outlawing abortion nationwide. And the other side, the other side is dead set on, on maintaining that. I don't see how you bridge that divide. And and there's a whole range of other issues that, that I could, I could go through that. I mean, one of the big issues for me is, uh, is healthcare. I just, I, I, it's very personal for me from experience and, um, I just think it's barbaric mm-hmm. the kind of healthcare system that we have and the fact that we haven't done something to to address it to have some kind of um single payer or nationalized universal healthcare system uh you know to me I don't want to live in a country or a society that doesn't address that um um I've thought about it a long time that that one issue by itself um is a reason that I've thought about uh, leaving the country, moving to another country. Um, until mm-hmm. eventually I just thought, well, most of the people in my community, in my state, uh, agree with me more. So why, why should I leave the country when everybody around me <laughs> feels the same? But there are, there's a large segment of the population that views yeah. any kind of government intervention into healthcare or some kind of uh, Medicare for all system as you know, Stalin is coming back from the grave. It's uh, it's communists. And, and I just don't see, and those are just two issues. I don't see how that gets resolved, even if we tone down the temperature and have a sit down and, and talk and listen. I don't know where that goes. Well, I, you know, that's a great point, but it, uh, I, I feel like in the 78 episodes that, that I've, I've been doing this podcast, and obviously I wouldn't expect you to have listened to all of that, um, but I've had a lot of recurring themes in it, and I've, I've explored a lot of topics, but there, there are overarching themes. And, and that, that is one thing that, that we and, and myself have, have brought up is the, and I, I think I use this phrase, listening over labeling. Um, and so, while that gets us back to civility and that that ensures that we don't rip apart the social fabric because i 
and I'm sure you would agree, nothing good comes from a, a torn apart social fabric. That is a breeding ground for for serious bloody rebellion, um, as history has shown. And I, I don't think we we want to go down that road. I don't think Americans are with with the look. There's a lot of pain in this nation. There's a lot of suffering, but we still have it pretty good compared to a lot of people. I don't think we're ready to 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 lose that. In fact, I would I know we're not ready to 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 lose that standard of living. What what vestiges we have of it. Um. So so step one is 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 to listen more, understand that. By, by labeling and name calling and, and actually calling people the most vile and thinking of them as the most vile is, is just not going to work. And so, so that's an exercise, but it's, it, you're right. It's not, it's not the end. It, it, you have to go to the next step. And the next step, and this is something that I've been talking about, is we, we really have to, we have to, we have to go back and, and study our original principles. And, and, and remember, the nation was very divided. It's not like all the founding fathers agreed. You, in, basically, you had the, fe the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. It's my belief that despite going back to the 1800s, and, and there, were some, there were obviously some, some clear contradictions with, with their idea of equality and freedom, right? Because we had slavery. I, I think if we if we just look at the substance of what they were debating about and compare it to today, to today, I feel like we've lost a lot of substance. We still have issues that are, are important and that are, are in people's hearts, but it's becoming clouded with, with that loss of empathy, with the labeling and the notion that the, the other is, is, is going to ruin this country. Now, make no mistake about it. That existed in the, in the, the first decades that the, the debates were very hot. I mean, obviously it led to the death of one of the founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton. But my only point is that the, the, the debates on what is the nature of government, what is the scope and size of government are always critical. They're universal, they're timeless. And I think we need to, to reinvestigate that, not to say that therein are going to be the, the perfect answers for, for the 21st century, but to get our, our minds into those gears again, to understand and, and revisit. That's how the Italians had the Renaissance, is they went back to the classics. And so we have our own little version of the classics. Of course, that's being attacked. Um, you know, there are people who think that classical studies or or just studying writings of the founding fathers is, is, is not good. I, I, would, I would highly disagree with that. Um, we're talking about people who came from the tradition of the Enlightenment. And again, they didn't have all the answers, but there was far more substance. I think in, in, there's far more substance in debating Lockean philosophy or Hobbesian philosophy versus the same old CNN, Fox News stuff that you hear on television. Well, yeah, the, the level of discourse in the mainstream media is definitely pretty low. Yeah. Sorry, that was a long answer. I'm trying to shorten these. I agree that we can go back to fundamental principles. I think something over the past 18 months, I've mentioned this uh, in the podcast, my podcasts, 
myself, is if you ask people, do you support XYZ, good things? Do you support freedom, liberty, these different notions? You'll have widespread agreement. Like, I mean, how many, what percentage of the people are going to say, no, I'm against freedom? I mean, I mean, the the issue is that people use these words yeah. and they mean they mean different things to different people. So when you say, "Well, we can all rally around freedom," well, you know, when a when a conservative in the middle of the country says, "I'm gonna," you know, I can rally around freedom and I believe in freedom, they could mean something very different than what I mean when I say, you know, I I believe in freedom, and that's I guess what I'm saying is that. We, it's it's easy to go to these fundamental principles and say we believe in these words, but the interpretation of those words, I think, is the issue. And that's been something from the beginning of the country. I I think that's that does go back to the beginning um, of the country. It's been something that's been debated. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's like we don't even have civics anymore, right? We got we got social studies. Frank Zappa used to joke about that, by the way. He's from your neck of the woods. Um, and uh, what does that say? What does that say that, that um, how, how, does, how does a society disband civics? How do, they, how, do they, how do they get over that and say, well, that, that's a thing of the past? Um, so imagine... Imagine if we return to to curriculums that had more emphasis on civics. I mean, I think a lot of a lot of our problems would would be solved in the long run, not not immediately, but just right there to get people more into the gear of of civic minded individuals versus partisan. You know, what, whether and look, the, we we say woke and we think of woke and we think of it on the left, but there's 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 I like to say there's wokeism on the right. And so I think populism can be a good thing, but I think, again, when it's inflammatory, just like our hyperpartisan uh, nature, we're, we're just, we're, we're essentially, what we're doing is what, what the Romans did. You gather a bunch of people in the hippodrome, and you get them cheering for a color, and, and you think that the, the other color is, is the worst, nastiest thing, and your color is good. Again, tribalism. You've talked about um, the the idea of centralization versus decentralization. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? And I'll just before you start, I'll throw in my two cents. Um, so I've always been kind of on the left. So I've I've always had uh, maybe a, not a certain affinity, but uh, a willingness to have some degree of centralization, you know, whether it's in government or, you know, different organization. Um, but mm -hmm. I've kind of come to think the last uh, year or couple of years that maybe just the, the size and scope of something like 300 million people is it's just, mm -hmm. it's so large, especially in the United States when it's so geographically and culturally kind of disparate, um, that uh, some kind of decentralization 
maybe is more appropriate that it's just it's too big to manage um at that level is that kind of what when you when you talk about decentralization versus centralization yeah yeah and 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 that of course is one of the major topics of what i talk at when when i was just saying that going back to what the founding fathers debated about was um what is federalism? What is what is the role between federal and state governments? Um, Madison, of course, was was the bridge between Hamilton and, and Jefferson, and which Madison created this elaborate system of checks and balances that served both for federalism because he wasn't entirely ready to go Jefferson's way of of um, you know where. We're, we're a confederacy of states and there should be no strong central government. Uh, there, and, and if there is, it's, it's, it's for very few things. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that, that's what it is, is, is we've had in the last hundred years, no shortage of, of the state or the government claiming that it has the solutions to more and more of our problems. And so we're now getting to a point where I asked the question, at what point do we say the federal government should not micromanage this aspect of my life? I, I could very much see a situation where if, if a line isn't drawn now, the, the federal government and, and even state governments are, are, are going to increasingly determine almost every aspect of our life. And so decentralization is I guess the first step would be, um, well, the Tenth Amendment, right, says that all the powers not mentioned in the Constitution are, are reserved to the state. So, can the can the state override what a, what a, what a federal what a federal law or regulation, uh, you know, puts into existence? Well, certainly the Tenth Amendment says that. Certainly the the founding of our country, um, what. Uh, agreed with that so I, I would just start off there I, I think we have a lot yeah, more to say on this topic it's a little bit of a paradox for me because in a sense a part of my issue with the federal government is well I don't agree with what they do spend money on a lot of it like the military and things like that but my other issue with it is that they're not that they're not um, spending money on things that I think the government has a role to play in. So I mentioned healthcare. So it's it's kind of a paradox in that I I'm in favor of a form of decentralization to the state level for the sake of the state being taking a more active role that it's not that the federal government is not taking. You you see the kind of contradiction <laughs> contradiction there. Um yeah. No, I no, I, I, I do, but um, I mean, and, and this is this is another thing. I, so you were talking about complexity. So this is a geographically very large nation, one of the, the, the top five in the world in terms of landmass, um, 330 million people, roughly. And um, how how does that work over time? What what government has successfully over time maintained some kind of stability and 
for for its people over centuries, eventually things break down. Eventually, whether that's just looking at maps in general. I mean, in other words, I think it would be completely unrealistic to expect 50 to 75 years from now that the, the, the map that we know of the United States right now will remain intact. That because certainly history doesn't show that wherever you go, maps are boundaries are constantly in flux. Why would we be an exception to that? Especially given our our contentious political and cultural landscape. Right yeah, now. I think if you had, um, well, you were in Czechoslovakia. Um, if you had uh, spoke Czech Czech sorry, Republic, Czech Republic um, if you had spoken to around 1987 or 1988, um, if you'd spoken to people there and said, you know, in a few years time, um, the Berlin Wall will come down, the Soviet Union will more or less peacefully dissolve into component parts. <laughs> um, people would have thought you were nuts. I, they, yeah. they would have, I mean, it would have been complete disbelief. No one would have taken you seriously. And yet it happened. Um, so I just think people shouldn't be so presumptuous to think that they uh, that they know what direction things are heading. It's I think the Soviet Union is uh, is an example to to show that that kind of thing can happen. And with the Soviet Union, at least it was relatively peaceful. Um, and uh, mm -hmm. I hope yeah. that's a model for us if we do go that direction. Uh, that if we do end up having a division that does result in some kind of disillusion or separation, that it, my hope is that it just goes in a nonviolent direction. I just don't want to see, I don't want to see this escalating yeah. uh, levels of violence. And because um, that just doesn't, that just doesn't end well. No, it doesn't. And anything that's born in, in, in violence has, has more, it, it just makes it that much harder to get over, right? It, it carries it, it, it carries baggage with it. Um, but, you know, I mean, to go back to your earlier point about you said, well, you, you know, I'm going to take you for task on this. I, I don't think that the um, people are going to lower the temperature and, and that people are going to listen more. And I, I, I agree with you. I, I, I'm more or less saying what needs to happen. Um, and then, of course, the, the next step to to go back to to educating ourselves on on more substance more substantive knowledge about about politics and not just obsessing over this political spectrum of where you fall right um, and and the other side being bad but I, I I if unless I'm misunderstanding you I I think I I would agree that it's not going to happen I don't think people are 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 going to tone it down um i think well i guess why don't we just just get into what what is the likelihood of of some kind of secession happening okay we can go that we can go that direction what do you think? um so that is the first half of my interview with jeremy if you want to listen to the second half it'll be released in a couple weeks where uh i answer his question and we go on to talk a lot more about the division sentiment about secession or independence and how we can interpret 
all of this uh, data that we're going to be talking about. So hope you'll join us in a couple weeks for the second half of this interview.